Well, before we can enjoy Christmas, some of us here this morning have a significant hurdle that we need to clear. That hurdle would be exams. All right, I can see some of you out here who are college students, you're smirking right now because you're already done. And you're pretty happy about that. And you're relaxing and you're ready for Christmas to come. I know that others of you are in the middle of them right now. You've done some. You've got some to go yet. I'm guessing that your brain isn't going to be connecting with me much this morning. You're going to be thinking about theorems and theories and all sorts of stuff. And I can't blame you for that. Some of you, I know some high schoolers, are about to start on Monday. You've got the full load just waiting for you. You have my sympathy. I don't envy you this coming week. I recognize that for some of you who are facing exams, this might not be the best time to talk about Jesus being our teacher. But we're going to anyways. Because that's where we are this morning in our Advent journey. This Advent, we're looking at who Jesus grew up to be. right? We're looking at how it kind of ended before we go back to the beginning so that when we get to Christmas, the arrival of this child, we know who we're celebrating. We know what we truly are celebrating. And we started our Advent journey by recognizing that Jesus arrived as a rebel, right? Not just a sweet little baby. He grew up beyond being a sweet little baby to be the dividing line of all history and all eternity. Last week, we recognized that Jesus came as our healer. This baby grew up to be our doctor, bringing both physical and spiritual healing to the brokenness in our lives. And when Jesus wasn't busy healing, he was busy teaching. So this morning, some of of us are going to have to set aside exams and finals week for a few moments to consider what it means for us to have this baby that we celebrate at Christmas grow up to be our teacher. You know, we get a pretty clear indication early on in Jesus' life that teaching was in his future. The Gospels are are virtually silent about Jesus growing up years, right? We get to see him at eight days old, and then the next time we see him, he's 30. We hear nothing about Jesus growing up years except for one story. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We think of that chapter being the the birth story, but it goes on. We're going to read the second part of Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Because this is the one time we get to see Jesus as a child. It's page 833, by the way, in the Bibles you have in front of you. 833. Luke 2, start at verse 41 with me. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So here he is at 12 years old. I don't know if you can remember your life at 12 years old. But at 12 years old, most of us are trudging through middle school, right? Trying to figure life out. And while, while we're trudging through middle school, at 12 years old, Jesus is sitting in the temple courts, the, the place of higher education of that day. He's sitting with the professors, schooling them, amazing them, teaching them. He was already well on his way to being a teacher at 12 years old. And that's exactly the title that he then grows into. Right? Again and again throughout the Gospels, people identify him as teacher, good teacher. So if we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus as a baby this Christmas, we're ultimately celebrating the arrival of our teacher. And I think most of us, I can imagine, would have enjoyed having Jesus as our teacher. Pretty much everyone who wasn't a Pharisee enjoyed listening to him teach. I think he would have rated really well on that Rate My Professor webpage if they had invented that already. By the way, I looked up all of the Calvin professors or all the college professors here, and they all rate well. So you're doing well. But the people really love to hear Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 1 tells us that the people were amazed at his teachings because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. You see, almost all the teachers of the law of that day were just repeating the lessons that had been taught before them. Their goal wasn't to, to teach people how to critically think and how to understand and think for themselves. Their goal was to jam facts and information into their heads, into their brains, especially about the law of God and this specifics of what you could and couldn't do in order to be holy. So, so the other teachers of the law, they were just teaching to memorize facts and information. And then along comes Jesus, who began to teach new things in all new ways. He didn't limit himself to just the facts of the law. He challenged people to think differently, to move beyond the head and into the heart to rethink their relationship with God himself. And he did that by telling these wonderful stories that he called parables. And through these stories, he left people who list, were listening to him, he left them to wonder, to ponder, to explore, to discuss, to debate, because if you've read some of his parables, you know this to be true. Clarity of specific facts was not always Jesus' top priority, was it? In fact, in, in Matthew 13, Jesus has just told one of his, his more confusing parables. 
And, and the disciples pull him away from the crowd, and the disciples ask him, why, why do you talk to people in these parables, in these stories? We don't get it. They don't get it. We're all kind of confused. Tell us why you do this. And here's Jesus' answer. He tells them, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. And so this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear and understand. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but do not see. They did not see it. Or they, and they did not hear what you hear. If I was a disciple, I'd say, what? I your, your answer to my questions is as confusing as the stories that you're telling. That answer still left them wondering and pondering. Because Jesus was comfortable with mystery. He invited people into mystery. That's what the parables did. And that's fitting because wherever we, whenever we set out to explore God, to try and figure out his kingdom, to try and understand his way of acting, we will always be left with mystery. And when we are invited into mystery, as Jesus invited us in, that's when we search to discover, right? That's when we'll begin to explore. That's when we'll, we'll find clues and answers and hints that lead us to explore deeper and to discover more and to come closer to truth. Mysteries engage our hearts as well as our heads like facts and charts and information just can't do. That's why, Matthew tells us, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables, and he did not say anything to them that wasn't a parable. It's mystery, inviting us into the mystery that is God. But we also need to realize that there is no mystery when it comes to the very heart of what Jesus, our teacher, came to. To teach us. Through his stories and the pursuit of mystery, Jesus ushered in a whole new way of thinking and living. He ushered in a whole new way of God being in relationship with us, his creation, and us, his creation, being in relationship with him. So what is it that Jesus was teaching back then, and what is it that he's still teaching us today? Well, first of all, he certainly still taught the truth of God's word. Right? The, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were teaching the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they emphasized in their teaching the truth of the law of God. This, this law, this list of do's and don'ts that define purity, that define holiness. This was the list of facts that they were presenting and prodding all these people to pursue. And Jesus comes along, and in his teaching, he did not abandon that desire for purity and for holiness in life. 
Jesus still cared about truth. He cared about right knowing, about people knowing the truth and the facts of how to live a blessed life, of, of what life choices will bring hardships and what life choices will bring blessing, of what life choices will bring disappointment and which ones will bring peace and joy. He still wanted us to know God's direction on how to, how to build right community and how to build relationships together that are holy and healthy as God intended them to be. So, so Jesus continued to teach the law of God. In fact, his fellow teachers, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law who didn't like Jesus, they recognized that in him. And so in one of the instances when they were going to try and trap him, the Pharisees were going to try and trick him, they begin their conversation with Jesus like this. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. There's his enemies telling him, we know you're right and we know that you speak truth. In fact, Jesus himself reveals to us his passion for right thinking, for the truth. We sometimes hear people say, don't we, that because of New Testament grace, Old Testament law is obsolete. We can just ignore all those Old Testament commands and directions for living because we're New Testament people. If you follow that, train of thought that leaves us in a kind of you do you and I'll do me kind of morality. In, in a kind of anything goes, who are you to judge me kind of spiritual ethics. But Jesus himself decisively corrects that misconception in Matthew chapter 5. This is what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and listen to this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. So knowing truth still matters. Knowing how God designed us to live, knowing what will bring us joy, knowing what will bring us pain, knowing what will honor God and what will disappoint God, knowing how to honor people around us, knowing the facts of God's law, right thinking, is still very, very important. And Jesus taught it. But our teacher, Jesus, moved beyond just teaching the facts of that truth, beyond just right thinking. 
And he taught us that our truth must always be inseparably wrapped up in love. Our right thinking must always be paired with right living. This is the radical revolution that our teacher Jesus brought. A right relationship with God and right relationships with each other are no longer defined just by strict adherence to the law, by following this long list of do's and don'ts. Our purpose and our goal for living is not a legalistic obedience. Instead, our right relationship with God and our right relationship with the people around us is now grounded in grace. And it is defined by love. And Jesus makes it clear that this is, this is a both-and proposition, not an either-or dichotomy. He isn't satisfied for us to simply pursue the law without love. That, that is a legalism that shapes us to be judgmental and critical and condemning. But he also isn't satisfied for us to simply dismiss the law and only pursue love. That's a permissiveness and a relativism that leads us to a, a wishy-washy whatever, right and wrong, that's unwilling to defend any godly truth. Instead, Jesus teaches us to weave those two realities together. I'm guessing that most of us have heard the words of Jesus from Matthew 22. It's a revolutionary moment in history. Jesus reveals the newness of the kingdom that he's bringing. The Pharisees, in this instance, these truth pursuers, they're trying to trap Jesus by asking him what's the most important commandment, rank the commands, and in doing so, they're going to trap him by saying one command doesn't matter as much as the other. Listen to his answer. Jesus says to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor and yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Can you see what Jesus did there? He dismissed none of God's directions for living. He refused to rank any of these commandments either as more important or less important. He refused to dismiss truth and the importance of right knowing in the kingdom of God. Instead, he took that truth and he wrapped the whole thing, the whole law in the love of God. Because love is the context within which we live out these laws. Not legalism. Not a legalistic, critical, and judgmentalism. Because it's the law that teaches us to love God, he says. It's the law that teaches us to love each other, he says. And if the truth is not wrapped in love, it becomes a weapon where we inflict hurt on each other. And if love is not grounded in the truth, it becomes an invitation to become gods of our own lives 
It becomes an affirmation of our disobedience and of our own self-centered living. This central truth is core to the gospel, core to our living. The apostle Paul recognizes that in Ephesians 4. He's pushing his readers towards spiritual maturity, towards growing up in the faith. And he says this, he says, when, when we grow into spiritual adults, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the, by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, and get this, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Truth in love. We hold them together, never diminishing either one. That is what our teacher, Jesus, came to teach us. And if you want to know what that looks like, very practically, then pick up this book and read the story of Jesus' life. Because he taught us by example. That's exactly what he lived. Jesus never let people off the hook. He, he held them to the truth of God's law. He gave commands like, like go and do likewise. Stop sinning. Go now and leave your life of sin. He gave those commands. But those words were always motivated by love. They were always spoken in grace after giving a healing after granting forgiveness, after showing grace. Even his harshest words for his Pharisees, for those people who are working against him, were motivated by love, by the desire that they finally hear and receive the truth and the grace of God. Jesus always wrapped his truth in love and he models for us how to do that, how to live that way. But let me warn you, if you think, if you think that's going to be simple, if you think living that out in your life, day in, day out, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, when you're out for coffee with your friends, if you think it's going to be simple, remember what happened to Jesus as he lived out that kind of life. He was crucified. He paid for it with his life. Because it is so much easier to pick either side. To pick truth or to pick love and go all in on either side and not try and wrap them together. It's easier, way easier just to become a truth teller. And my guess is all of us here can identify somebody in your life who's just plain a truth teller. Yes, their words may be very true and they may be right, but they're empty of love. They think they're speaking for God, but they have none of God's love in what they say. And their truth, when they speak it, brings hurt instead of healing. It's spoken in judgment and criticism instead of love and encouragement. In fact, we most likely not only know someone like that, my guess is all of us have been that person at one point or another. And if your motivation for speaking is not wrapped in love, 
then maybe you shouldn't speak quite yet. It's easier just to be a truth teller. It's also easier simply to live out an affirming love and to let truth slide. It's easier to always be nice. That's what that really does, right? You don't hold the truth because sometimes the truth is hard. And so let's just be nice and always love. Except I don't read anywhere in this book where God calls us to be nice. And there's a difference between being nice and being loving. Nice avoids the hard task of truth-telling. Love tells the truth because it cares deeply. Nice refuses to rock the boat because that's too dangerous to do in a relationship. Love dares to make an honest call for change in our lives, in our relationships, in our societies when they aren't the way that God designed them to be. Nice avoids conflict. Love dares to confront in a gentle way. Nice is what this world wants from us. Love is what God wants from us. Nice is love without truth. Love envelops the truth. And that's hard to do. But that's exactly what our teacher Jesus taught us to do through his words, through his example. That's what Jesus' birth brings, right? John's version of the Christmas story, his poetic version, tells us this. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John saw it. That manger at Christmas held grace and truth together. Grace and truth. That's who Jesus is. That's how he was born. That's what he taught. Grace and truth together. He taught us that so clearly, so consistently, so powerfully, because our teacher knew that there's a final exam on the way. A final exam that each of us is going to have to take. There's a final exam with eternal ramifications. In order, in order to pass this exam, you and I need to know the truth. And the truth we need to know is not a list of facts. This exam isn't about regurgitating enough right answers and having done enough right things that God lets you into his eternity. No. The truth we need to know to pass this exam is a person. We need to know the truth and love wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth, he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. And isn't that what makes Pilate's question when he had Jesus standing right in front of him at Jesus' trial? It makes his his question so ironic and so sad. Pilate, this Roman governor holding the, the power to condemn Jesus in his hand, mystified on what to do, asks the simple question, what is truth? Right, what is truth? And the answer is literally standing there staring him in the face. The truth was Jesus standing right there. Truth wrapped in love. 
that's the answer we need to know. And our Jesus desperately wants everyone to pass this exam. Everyone. So last Tuesday night, the elders met. And our pastoral elders spent a few moments at the beginning of our meeting reflecting on 2 Peter 3. Peter reminds us of God's heart, his heart of love. He writes, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone. He wants everyone to pass. Jesus is a good kind of professor, a great kind of teacher. He's patient with us as students as we keep learning. And he actually just gives us the answer. He gives us the answer to the final exam. The answer the Father is looking for from us is Jesus. Our teacher has taught us well. Our test begins now. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking truth into our lives truth of what is right and what is wrong truth of what will bring us healing and wholeness in the midst of our brokenness truth of how we are created and how we can be community together and how we can bring hope and joy and fulfillment to this whole society to this to this city to our neighborhood to our nation and to our world Thank you for revealing truth to us through your word and through your spirit. And thank you for doing that out of love, in deep, deep love for us. Because you want none of us to fail this exam. You want all of your children to be celebrating a wonderful graduation in your presence. And so thank you for wrapping your truth in love in the person of Jesus Christ who loved us, loved us enough to die for us and to rise again. And now may we imitate him. May we speak truth in love And may we receive your gift, not just this Christmas, but may we receive Jesus every day and be transformed by him. What an amazing love you have. What an amazing grace that you have given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.